Hello, everybody. Welcome to another episode of the Thriving Adoptees podcast. So today I'm delighted to join by Tor. Welcome to the show, Tor. Thank um, you. Thank you for making time for this. You're clearly a really busy lady and it's taken us a while to, to, to do this, but I really appreciate you coming on. Well, thank uh, you for having me. Stuff. Yeah, you're welcome. Brilliant. Um, so could you introduce yourself to the to the listeners, please? Yeah, my name's Tor and I'm here really with two roles. So one is that I'm an adoptive parent. And the other is uh, that I'm the chief executive of a charity called New Family Social. And that's a UK network of LGBT plus adopters and foster carers. Great. And, um, I, I, you know, we, we have a lot of people on the show who are, you know, their, their passion for adoption has led them to do what they do uh, pro- professionally. Um, and, and obviously, that's where I'm coming from as well so uh, I feel that kind of that lived experience is really really important and and you know, when we find our our niche then we're kind of away is that is that the way that it worked for you so I've always worked in charities and I've generally specialized in social exclusion so I've worked in several LGBT charities I've worked in HIV domestic violence um, homelessness lots and lots of different social issues And um, so I wasn't working in adoption when we started to talk about adoption. My partner is a woman and we got together, God, it's ages now, it's 21 years ago, incredibly, which puts a date on me as well. Um, So yeah, so we got together 21 years ago. And pretty quickly after that, I started sort of dropping hints that kids might be in the future for us. And uh, having said that, the way Jackie tells it, she would say nagging. Um, So I mentioned it a lot. And back then, there weren't as many options as there are now. So we had to talk about how we were going to achieve parenthood. And so uh, we did some investigation. And initially, we decided that we would go through a fertility clinic. And at the time, there were only a couple of clinics that would see a same-sex couple at all. So we started trying to conceive in about 2005, maybe a little bit before that. And we went to one of the only clinics in the country that would see us. They had a different price list based on whether you were heterosexual or gay, which was not illegal back then. Yeah. And so um, so we ended up doing a load of fertility treatments and it took quite a long time to work. But eventually it did work. And I became pregnant with um, the child that I now know was our son. So so he was born. But in the final week of my pregnancy, I wrote a letter and the letter said that if I were to die in childbirth or somehow go under a bus, I hoped that the courts would treat Jackie as my son's other parent, because back then there was no legal link between Jackie and him. So I guess it speaks to how vulnerable I felt as a family that I was hoping that in the event that I should die somehow, the courts would deem her worthy of a relationship with him because there there wasn't a legal relationship. And then uh, we went on and had our daughter the same way. So through the same clinic and using the same donor, that donor was anonymous. So we can't ever meet him. So he's kind of an unknown person in our lives, although someone to whom I'm immensely grateful for what he did. And so once we'd got those two, um, we had to try to put in place some legal arrangement for Jackie. And it wasn't easy at the time at all, bearing in mind there was no same-sex marriage then, there were no civil partnerships when my son was born. And so what we did was we applied for a residence order in our own favour, which is a court order saying where a child should live. It's often used in child protection issues. 
but by the back door, it created a legal link to the child and Jackie. And then we had to apply to adopt those two children. So although I had given birth to them, and I distinctly remember it because it really hurt. Um, so although I'd done that, we still had to apply to adopt them to create that legal structure around our family. And so we did that. So we had to be visited by social workers and so on, asking all the kinds of questions that they would ask for an adoption application, except a lot of them were nonsensical in our circumstances. So we went through that process and the court granted an adoption order in our favour for the children that I gave birth to. And then um, those children grew up ever so slightly and I started to think, you know what, we've got one spare room, maybe just the one more child, three won't be much different to two. And so uh, we started talking about how to do it. And I think because we were more confident as parents and I think because through parenthood, we'd come to have more understanding that not all children have a, an easy start in life or the care that they need in those early years. I felt that perhaps adoption would be the route for us. And so we investigated that and started to think that actually maybe that third child could come to us through adoption. Wow. I, I mean, it, it's... It's mind it's mind boggling to me. I mean, we we have some unique stories on this show, um, and uh, yeah, I, I don't really know what to, to say because I, I, incredible, you know, um, for for you to go through, you know, you you talk about the nonsensical questions. It's like it, it it's it's mind boggling the, the 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 stuff that you've that you the um, um, the stuff that you've gone through the uh, prejudice that you've faced the different prices and the fact you've just kept going I mean incredible. Yeah. I don't I mean I don't think we're unique in adoption in that I think lots of people decide to adopt and then you have to put your armor on and push on through the barriers that you hit but my eldest son is only 15 so we are not talking about a lifetime ago when I talk about real experience of systemic prejudice so absolutely um when we decided to adopt, then that's when we joined New Family Social, which is the charity that now I'm the yeah. chief executive of, but I wasn't then. So we heard of New Family Social and we thought, well, let's go and meet some other LGBT people who've done this. So that's what we did. And then I decided I'd bring up some adoption agencies. And um, in the UK, you have a choice of agency. So I rang around lots. I made a list. I'm a bit of a spreadsheet kind of geek. So um, I made a spreadsheet and started phoning places. And most of them wouldn't take us. And there were two reasons. Uh, so Jackie is of Asian origin. So her family are from India. And so um, our older two children are half Indian. And then I gave birth to them and I'm white British. So um, they're mixed heritage. And so we wanted the third child to be mixed heritage as well, because we felt that we didn't want people to glance at our family and it'd be very apparent um, that one child had perhaps arrived through a different route, you know. So, so we thought, right, a child from a similar background would probably be a positive thing. But we live in quite a rural area. And so the local agencies were saying we don't have children that fit that profile. And the agencies that were further away that would have had children that fitted that profile, uh, they were saying that we were too far to assess. So I think I rang 19 agencies in the end. And eventually we went with the only one that would take us. Um, and when I rang them, I said, have you ever dealt with LGBT people before? 
And the answer was, what's LGBT? And I thought, <laughs> wow, okay. I now know where the bar is, low. Um, so again, we we had to really just put our armor on and get ready for a process where we felt that we were the first people going through it with that agency. Yeah. So you've you've mentioned that word armor again, and I'd written it down as you when you mentioned it the first time. What what it what is the armor for you? Um it it's a resilience, I suppose, um, a sense that the aim is important enough that you can endure um, obstacles in the process. And Jackie and I felt that we would be turned down as adopters. And we felt it for three reasons. So one was because we're a same-sex couple and I thought they might approve us despite that, with despite being the key word. Um, The second one is that I have multiple sclerosis. And so I thought, well, that's gonna be a concern for them. And the third reason is that Jackie had mental health problems in her 20s, including a suicide attempt, and we felt that that would go against us. So despite the fact that um, we felt all of those things potentially either demonstrated strength or resilience or whatever it was, we didn't think that the process would see it that way. And we thought that they were things that were against us. So we approached it ready to be turned down. And I think that we then made a fairly fundamental mistake, which was that we treated the rest of the process like a job application. So we thought we'd better be perfect in every other answer because we were sure that we were asking to be approved despite lots of negatives. Um, So every other answer we attempted to deliver in quotes, a perfect answer. And we didn't really admit to any doubt or any weakness or anything like that. We treated it as a process to be, like a test to be passed really, I suppose, rather than a conversation. And I wish that somebody had said to us back then that those three things that we were so worried about were potentially our biggest strengths actually. Because if you say to me and Jackie, do you have a strong relationship? I would say, yes. If you say, well, how, what have you overcome? I would say things like we have overcome prejudice. We have overcome my diagnosis with a potentially life altering condition and so on and so on now that's proof and that's what I would say to a friend but I didn't feel I could say it to the system the adoption system I wish somebody had told me they were strengths because we could have presented them in that way and then I might have dared to admit nervousness or weakness or inability in some areas or whatever it was and as it was we didn't really admit to that we treated it like a job application which I wouldn't recommend to anybody So uh, it, fascinating there in terms of um, lessons for life and lessons that we pass on to our kids. And, you know, what, uh, what does Gandhi say? Be the change that we want to see in the world. Mm. Um, a lot of people don't, uh, don't attempt things that they think they're going to fail. Uh, and you know, I, I do. I've done a program a couple of times with a, a guy called um, Michael Neal, an American guy. It's called Creating the Impossible. It runs for three months at the start of the year, and the idea is that as uh, as as adults, we're so hung up with the result that it it it, it, it um um it stops us moving forward. Um, you know, we've got we are attached, not as in attached from an adoption perspective but we um, uh, 
sorry, attached as in parent and child being attached, not Mm. that sort of attachment. I mean, like we've got, there's so much riding on what we do that we don't dare uh, uh, personally. We think that failing is going to make us a failure. So we don't do the stuff that we want to do because we think we're going to fail at it and we think that's going to make us a failure. So we never really attempt. Yes. Um, now, you clearly aren't like that. <laughs> <laughs> I don't think that LGBT people can live that way because in coming out at all, you have to say that the, the way that I am is different to perhaps what people expected and perhaps what people wanted. And certainly going back a little bit, you had to do that. So in coming out at all, you have stepped outside a mould and you have already said the system as is doesn't work for me. The expectations don't work for me. And I want to authentically be myself, which is why I'm telling you the following. And in doing that, um, you face fear. You face fear of rejection and you face fear of letting people down and disapproval and all of those things. But actually in facing those things, you come out the other side with certain skills. And I think that you can lean into those skills when you put yourself forward for other situations that involve being approved of or not. And so, um, so for me, I draw on that. And I have other friends who again, approached it in that way because, you know, going back to when we did, um, when we did all of this, my, my son has now been with us eight years. So, um, you know, we're still going back a little way and things have changed very fast in terms of attitudes and so on, particularly for lesbian and gay people. I think less so for bisexual and trans people. Um, but we can talk more about that um, shortly if you want to. But um, for us, we had come out at a time when we didn't have legal protection at work. We didn't have the right to form a civil partnership or to marry. Uh, we didn't have the right to adopt. We you know, and on and on and on. I could go on and on listing the systemic uh, problems in terms of that we were facing as barriers. So actually the thought of potentially facing some barriers, it was like, yeah, and what, like every other day. So it wasn't a fear in that same way. And I think as well, um, again, going back to when I came out, you had to find your own dignity because there were lots of systems and people that were willing to try and take that dignity and pride away from you. And so, um, you know, I remember the newspapers would write Elton John and his husband in quotes because legally he wasn't married, but equally it was a bit of a, let's have a bit of a laugh at the gays, you know, than their ridiculous relationship that's really only worthy of mocking. And that was the tone of a lot of communication about LGBT things, not going back very far. And so you have to find your own sense of dignity and pride and say, I am holding this despite what anybody says to me. And I'm not saying that always works. I think being under that barrage can be quite damaging. But I think that sometimes you have to believe in yourself, even if you're getting some negative messages. Yeah. So resilience is... um a big theme, a big theme for me. And, uh, and, and often I, I think we, we, we look for resilience uh, and, and I often talk about resilience. It's not like everybody says it's like going to the gym. Yeah. So people there are selling resilience training, you know, <laughs> or, and they're saying that, you know, that they've strengthened, their resilience like you know you know so uh they see us 
um, the, the, their potential clients for resilience. <laughs> and they say they realize that we feel weak and we feel um, unsure in, in, in certain instances. And they come along and say, well, I, c- I can make you stronger and I can make you more resilient. And so resilience is an additive thing and it, 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 and it's a skill and it's something that we master and, you know, and it's all very logical and it's like going to the gym. And I think that that's, and, and so we, we believe that resilience lies outside ourselves. And so people say these things like, uh, what doesn't kill us makes us stronger. Well, it, it does make us stronger, but it only makes us stronger by revealing the strength that we already had. And that for me is a game changer. And I have these conversations and I, I don't know whether it's making any, making a difference. So one, one thought of resilience is something that you need to develop. Oh God, how am I going to develop it? What, what do I need to do? Da, 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 you know, and, and it sets that, that the, the, um, the, the, the inner voice step is set loose and it's looking for resilience outside them. Whereas if we kind of realize if it, resilience is something that we realize, we see for ourselves, we go through stuff, we get through it despite thinking that we couldn't do it. And therefore it's a lot quicker. We actually, it, it, it happens in an instant. So if it's, if resilience is a skill that's, um, that's developed, it's like, how long's how do I develop the skill? How long is it going to take when I become more resilient? And, and you're in for it for the long haul. Whereas if some, if we actually looked at, at my view of resilience is it's something that we see for ourselves in the moment and we see for it because we get through stuff. And that means it's an instant, instantaneous thing and we don't need to go outside looking for ourselves. Um, for me, that is kind of, a, 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 when I saw that for myself, right, I thought that that, that, that was really powerful, but there's kind of, there's no such thing as a secondhand epiphany. There's no such thing as a secondhand insight. We have to see it for ourselves. Um, does that make any sense to you? Yeah, I can understand what you're saying. I mean, I relate to that in terms of something like fear. I think fear is something that reduces by going through it rather than avoiding the thing that's just frightening. But I guess I'm conscious of the privilege that I have because the biggest the biggest way in which I've experienced social exclusion or barriers in my life, one is through being female, one is through being LGBT. And at points when my MS has kicked off, then I I don't always think of myself as having a disability because I'm not always affected in that way, but at points I have been. So I've hit barriers on those things. And so I, I have an understanding of resilience in relation to those things. But even with those things, I hit them from a position of being white, fairly affluent, educated, articulate, supported, and so on and so on. And so I think that some of the things, some of the areas of my life in which I do have privilege carry me through some circumstances that someone else, no matter how resilient, no matter how determined, is going to hit barriers that are not overcomable because they are excluded in a way that doesn't allow them to overcome it. And so I'm very conscious that when I speak as an adopter who um, is in a same-sex relationship, if I were trans, I would be hitting different barriers and I might be hitting barriers that are not overcomable at the moment. And so um, I feel that 
I do think the resilience is something that you may have as an innate thing. It may be a skill that you develop, but I think sometimes that it isn't all about an internal process. Uh, some Sometimes the barriers are such that they aren't overcomable and that you can end up on the outside of a system because the system is simply closed to you and that's it. So I'm really conscious at the moment that, you know, I talk to lots of people who I think would make really excellent adopters or foster carers. And the system just simply is throwing up barrier after barrier after barrier to them. And so in that, it's about systemic change and about those things being open to them. If I had wanted to adopt 10 years earlier than I did, it would have been illegal for me to do so. So yes, my resilience carried me through, but 10 years earlier, I could have been as resilient as you like and I'd never have had a child. Wow. So Thriving Adoptees is the name of the podcast. What does that mean to you, Tor? I'm not adopted, so I can't speak for what it means to be an adoptee. Um, what I hope for my child um, is that he's in a place that's good for him and that we can give him space and support to be himself and to to thrive in his way whatever that means and that's my hope for him really um the children the two children that I gave birth to inevitably they were going to be my children because you know they were born from me and of course I made some decisions that that meant they were born in that particular month or that particular moment from that particular donor um but with my son that we adopted, we went to an exchange day, which um, after you're approved as an adopter, you can go to an event and there are no children at the event, but there are lots of social workers who hold details of children who are available at that moment. And you go around and you talk to the social workers and so on. And we walked around that event and we were given lots of profiles of lots of children. And um, so we had a big stack of paperwork in our hands and then we went for a coffee and uh, we a lot of the process had been quite head based in terms of, you know, what what age of child do you want? What um, what challenges could you deal with? What challenges would you want to deal with? What wouldn't you want to deal with? And so on and so on. A lot of head based stuff. And I felt really disengaged from it on a sort of feelings level and a heart based level. So with all these profiles, we looked through them and we allowed our hearts to rule a little bit. And we picked out four children's profiles that we felt emotionally drawn to for reasons that would have been hard to put into words. And we didn't even try to put it into words. And with those four profiles, we then went back to the tables again and spoke to those social workers again to say, we feel that we'd like to talk more about this child. And actually our son was one of those four. So it feels much more like we chose him. I hate the patronising language sometimes around adoption, but I guess, you know, we, we chose his profile. We felt pulled towards his profile. But sometimes I look at his life and it's almost a quirk of fate that it was us and not somebody else. You know, it could have been somebody else in that room or somebody else. His life could have been different just by quirk of not having been handed that piece of paper or something. He'd have been with a different family, maybe with different interests, with a different life, with different siblings and so on. And it feels so random in some ways that he's with us. And I guess that thriving, I hope means that he has enough breadth that 
his life is the one that he needs it to be and that the support is the support that he needs and that he has a breadth of choices that allow him to, I guess that, oh, it sounds a bit cheesy, sorry, but that allow him to define what it means to thrive because I don't want to impose on him a model of you must be this child or be this person or grow up in this way or any of that. I want to give him support and space and encouragement and you know be proud of him and let him sort of say these are my interests these are my passions these are my hopes my dreams this is what it looks like and um I guess I hope to facilitate that for him without tightly defining that for him if that if that makes sense yeah so it does um so freedom for his his terms it it's it it's you know again you said cheesy but I'm something that's been a cheesy word yeah it's his life so he he makes of it what he wants to make of it freedom yeah I hope so I mean I think you know we just talked about privilege and I guess one of the things that comes with privilege is breadth of choice and so that when you're in a privileged position you have a range of choices that as you start to remove those privileges, people have fewer and fewer choices and um, fewer and fewer realistic options before them. And so um, I, I feel, I feel lucky that I have choices in my life and that um, some of that is contributed to by, by that privilege and so on. And I hope that for my son, I can help him to access choices for his life. And that might be, you know, choices around his hobbies and interests. It might be choices around how he processes his life experience. It might be uh, choices about, you know, uh, what job he does, what relationships he forms and things like that. And um, I just think choice is quite liberating. And so I hope that I can help him have lots of different choices in his life and be proud of who he is and feel safe in who he is. And, you know, I hope he just feels that... um, that he's kind of that we've got his back, I guess, you know, in in whatever he wants to be and however he chooses to define some of those things. And and what does that what does that mean for you, you know, as as a as a parent, as in your approach for, you know, for your son and and um well for, for all of your kids. What does it mean? What does it mean for you? What 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 does that what does that translate into how you raise your 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 kids? I'm smiling because I tell my kids I'm a really cool parent and they tell me I'm not, but I definitely am. Um, so we're You seem um, pretty cool to me. Thanks. <laughs> <laughs> it may just be that neither you nor I is actually cool in the eyes of young people these days. I don't know. <laughs> um so yes, uh our family is different straight off. So um, we have taken a very liberal approach to parenting because um, Jackie and I can hardly pretend that we conceived any of our children. We don't look like a, quote, normal family in any circumstance. So um, in our family, Jackie and I are a same-sex couple. Uh, we have obviously two children conceived with a donor, one child adopted. Uh, two of my children are half Indian. One is half Pakistani. Um, Jackie's background is um, Catholic religion. I'm atheist. Um, 
one of our children has a Muslim background. So we are a mishmash. I don't know if you remember the old United Colours of Benetton adverts. Do you remember those yeah, where they would parade diversity? Yeah, well, again, that puts an age on you and I. But these adverts were parade diversity. And that's my family. It's like the United Colours of Benetton family. Um, we have different surnames to each other. We, you know, we, we're in big quotes, weird. And so we stand out. And my children from being tiny have been asked to explain to people how their family is structured. Um, so, you know, where's your dad? Why haven't you got a dad? How did you, two mums have a baby then? Uh, why is your name different to one of your mum's names? And, and on and on and on and on. And so um, they are used to that. But in order to help them with that, we had to give them language around explaining their family. And if your child, so our eldest was donor conceived. And so we need to give him language from tiny about his family and that some people have two mums and about where his dad was, you know, that his dad was a donor and so on and so on from being tiny. So we never did a story of the stork brought you or, you know, mummy and daddy cuddled and then there was a baby or any of that. We had to be very frank with our children about um, you were donor conceived. And what that means is that um, there was a man and he left some sperm at the hospital and I went and had the sperm put into my uterus and that's how you were conceived. And so we've been factual with them and open with them right from the start. We've also had to be really open with them on other social issues, if you like. And when my eldest was five, a child in the park said to him, I'm not going to play with you because you're brown. And it was something that I knew we would have to deal with, but I didn't expect to have to deal with it there. And Jackie has lived experiences of racism, but I don't. And so we were suddenly in that moment, I was thrust as the parent that he was telling this experience to, into what's my answer? I now have to roll out my answer for this that I thought we might have the luxury of more time. And it felt in that moment like I was bursting a bubble for him because it was the first moment that I had to address with him that perhaps sometimes people will be prejudiced because of what you are and that was hard and so again some of my children's lives have been defined by um, being black and minority ethnic they're defined by having two moms and so on but actually, we laugh with our kids all the time about stuff. And so, you know, we are strong. We are that resilient word again. You know, we are proud of who we are. We get very, very little hassle, actually. So although I'm citing a couple of examples where we have, actually, day-to-day -day life is just fine. We are well integrated into the community on the odd occasion that we face problems. Um, you know, we tend to laugh about it. If it's a bigger problem, we will front it out. And, um, and so we do. And so we're honest and open with our kids. We chat about anything. They can come to me with anything. And um, yeah, I, we're cool parents, despite what my son says. <laughs> so, yeah. Yeah. And have, have you been in the same community for, for a while? Yeah. So uh, we moved to this village before we had kids. Um, and we are quite literally the only gays in the village. Um, and it's a fairly white area. Um, it's a fairly small C and in fact, large C conservative area. Um, and so, yeah, we, you know, we are a bit, we, you know, we stand out um, and, and that's fine. But actually, 
most of our life looks like just other parents. So the majority of our life is going, where was that letter for school? I don't know where your trainers are. No, I can't find this. You know, yeah, your PA top's still wet because you didn't give it to me in time. That's, that is the majority of what we do. Then there's a bit more, which is about adoption. And so some of our parenting is actually adoption specific. And it's about understanding that actually for one of our children, that foundation was not a secure one. And so probably 90% of our parenting is where's your PE top. 5% of our parenting is adoption specific and 5% of our parenting is LGBT specific. So actually put me in a room of parents and I'll have something, I'll have 90% of it in common with them. Put me in a room of adopters, we're now at 95% and put me in a room of LGBT adopters and we're now at 100% of stuff that my life resembles theirs. So actually we're great mates with our next door neighbours who are a heterosexual couple and our lives resemble each other. You know, I would say to them, my kid is driving me up the wall with this issue. And they go, oh my God, my kid is also driving me up the wall with the same issue. And that's great. But we do sometimes seek that support on the other two parts. And that for us is where New Family Social came in before I worked there, long before I worked there, because we could talk to other LGBT people who'd adopted kids and we could say, how are you addressing this? How are you doing that? How are you explaining this? And um, in some ways, there are parts of that where you just breathe and you know that these people get it. Yeah. Um, yeah, we live in a similar village. Um, you know, we've been here 20 odd years as uh, as well. And yeah, there, there are, there are, you know, there are some gays in our village. Um, uh, <laughs> <laughs> and, you live um, in my village. <laughs> yeah. Uh, uh, two, two guys, they're, uh, they're, they're they're uh, they're great they're great guys. Um, you kind of the reason I asked you about the the you know the the, the time in the community is because obviously that you know if you've the roots you know like we're we're like we're buddies with a lot of people in 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 our village and a lot of people in our village you know because again they're little C and big C so uh, conservative. Um, a lot of them are little C conservative here. They've been here a long time, like we've been here a long time. And, you know, like, so I was, I've lived in four, apart from being at college, I've been, I've lived, only lived in four houses in my life, all within mm. about 15 minutes drive of one another. So that those kind of roots and that familiarity and being known, I guess, makes me, well, I mean, makes people, more trusting more less questioning you know if so if yeah the, 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 there's there there are roots there that make the, the the basis for the relationships i guess um that seems that seems a bit trite or something from what i just said then i don't know um what what have you what have you learned from um professionally what have you learned from the other lgbtq plus um lgbt plus i'm not sure sorry I, i'm i'm not up, up up on the 
and on the job and what have you learned and that's now i'm feeling a bit silly because i should do i should be up on that um, no, don't worry there is debate about the q so don't worry that, because, okay. uh, yeah so q um sometimes stands for queer and sometimes stands for questioning depending on the context um where it stands for queer uh some people are reclaiming the word queer and take great pride in that word and for other people it remains the word that they were abused and it was shouted at them at school and so on. And so um, for some people that is a comfortable word and for some people it really isn't. So uh, as an organization, we use LGBT plus, there is a growing use of LGBTQ plus. So you know what, you were absolutely right in both attempts. Okay, so <laughs> what, what have you learned in terms of helping kids thrive and thrive on their own, in, in, on their own terms? What have you learned uh, from your in, uh, your involvement leading this uh, this great organisation. What have you learned about how parents help their kids thrive? Well, in England now, one in six adoptions is to a same-sex couple. So same-sex couples form a huge proportion of adopters in England. Um, same proportion in Wales, one in six. Scotland one in 12, um, Northern Ireland much lower and actually very low numbers at all. So it's a little harder to say it with the confidence. Um, but as a community, same-sex couples form a huge part of that. And I'm saying that very carefully because this is not a count of LGBT people. It's a count of same-sex couples, but one in six in England. Um, some of the stuff that I've learned professionally, some of the things that we know, one is that LGBT people can bring specific strengths to adoption. And that's around resilience, around wrestling with your own identity, around advocating for yourself. And these are all skills that LGBT people are likely to have developed. Um, the other thing that we know is LGBT people are willing to consider adopting a wider range of children than heterosexual people are willing to consider. And so as a pool of potential adopters, um, there is a breadth to the children that people are willing to consider. Now, there are two reasons for that, and they are slightly complex when you lay them together. So one of the reasons for that is that we think that an LGBT concept of family is perhaps a little broader, and perhaps it's not about the baby that you would have conceived if only infertility hadn't intervened. And perhaps it's more a, a broader concept of how parenthood might be arrived at and about what family might look like. But the flip side of that is that we think sometimes LGBT people will present as willing to adopt a wider range of children because in the past they might have been considered only for children with particularly high levels of need. Um, so it's two sides to, to the statistic really. But we do know essentially that as families, we are likely to be more willing to take children with more complex needs. We also know though, that sometimes LGBT people can be then nervous of seeking support. And it's a fear of confirming a prejudice sometimes. So for example, we don't ask for post-adoption support for fear that everyone will say, well, we always knew that you'd be rubbish at this. So there is a fear um, as well and messaging that we have received as LGBT people that sometimes is a little hard to overcome when you need to go and seek some help. Now, um, we as an agency help social workers to better understand LGBT people and to understand some of those barriers, some of which are in our own minds, an expectation of prejudice, 
and some of those which are real and experience of prejudice. And like I said before, sometimes that journey is different for lesbian and gay people to how it is for bisexual people, to how it is for trans people and so on. Wow. Yeah. Um, the, the identity piece then that you mentioned, you talked about the specific strengths. Um, how does that how how does that help or how do you how how do you the the, the thing is people talk a lot about this kind of modeling um and that's we're back to the gandhi be the change that you want to see in the world so that by being resilient um kids seeing their parents as as resilient and then they're going to be more resilient themselves because they've got you as role models. Um, what does does that make any? Am I oversimplifying that? Is that making any sense? How how do you how do you transfer? How do you raise resilient kids? How do you help kids be? sure in their identity what is it i so i've got a, an adoptee's perspective on this i don't have an adoptive parent's perspective on this and i ask this question whoever i'm whoever i'm interviewing because this is about parenting not sexuality in in my view you know this is about how do we raise more resilient kids how do we help our kids be um uh, stronger in their self-identity you know how do we help them be happy in their own skins what is it that you've learned ar around around these areas I mean one of the big things that I've learned with as a parent is that I'm making it up as I go along and that every challenge that we hit I'm attempting it in the best way I can sometimes with professional support, sometimes with research, and sometimes because the challenge arrived at my feet before I was ready for it, you know? Um, so I can say what I'm doing, but I can't say whether it's successful. My son himself one day would be able to tell you whether it was. Um, I am honest with my children, even if the information is hard to hear. Gently honest at times, but honest, because I personally think that, um, fear is sometimes harder to deal with than reality. So I try to be honest. Um, and I tell them that I'm being honest with them. I tell them that they can ask me things and I will give them an honest answer, even if it's hard. Uh, so for example, uh, a relative was very poorly and um, they we were talking about the relative's illness and I was saying to them, at the moment, the doctors don't think that this person is going to die. But if that changes, if you want me to, I will tell you that when I know it. Um, and if you want me to, then that's what I'll do. And they said, yes, they did want to know that. And so as hard as that is, it was about giving them some certainty that they didn't have to fear that person was dying right now, because if that became the information, then I would share that with them. So I try to be honest. I try to verbalise things around acceptance and so on so not just sort of think well my kids know that they're accepted I think the older two have an advantage because they have had um, a much more straightforward start in life um, for my younger child I verbalize things like um, 
I love you exactly as you are. And, um, you know, you, you know, you, you are, you know, you are lovely to me and I, I think you're brilliant exactly like you are and lots of things like that, that I try to verbalize and not take it as read that he knows. Um, I talked to him, particularly when he was littler, uh, one of the things that we were told was that his concept of relationships is very fragile. So um, he feels that, for example, if he's in trouble for something, that the entire relationship is severed, that it, it is not resilient enough to survive any sort of blip, where the older two can misbehave and they know that this is a rock solid relationship, that it's not going anywhere no matter what they do. But for my youngest, he doesn't have that certainty. And so when he was very little, um, I would talk to him about um, like a rope that joined our hearts together and that it was so strong that nobody could ever cut through it. To try to give him sort of a visual image for that relationship being so strong that it was unseverable. And sometimes if he was getting very upset, which for him always involves fear, um, I would talk to him about the rope is very strong and nobody can ever cut through it. Um, and so it's, I don't know. And I don't know if I'm doing it right. Um, so that's what I do. I, I try to, um, I try to give breadth of how of the words that he uses to describe his experience. He talks about having three mums, which is me, Jackie and his birth mum. And that's fine. So I wouldn't attempt to do anything with that language. I'm fine with that. He has half siblings who are adopted elsewhere, which um, he sometimes calls his sisters and brother and sometimes calls them something else like half siblings or whatever and again I let him work with that language I let him figure out what he wants to call this relationship and stuff and I'm there if he if he wants to talk about it but equally I don't want to dive in and we go well actually they're actually your half siblings it's these aren't my relationships they're his and I try to I don't know I just try to give acceptance and encouragement and tell him how proud I am and things like that um you know so I don't know who knows who knows if I'm doing it right I hope so um I hope I'm not doing anything wrong but um I think time will tell and I'm really loath to sort of speak for him on what works and what doesn't because I, what my hope is is that when he's an adult I can say to him that the choices that we made at various points were always with his interests in mind and always were with the best information that we could access at the time and motivated by love and care and hope that his life will be fine, whatever that looks like. And, um, and I hope that when he's an adult, he looks back and says, yeah, great. You were cool. I knew you, I know I'm cool, uh, but you know, whatever. Uh, but I, I hope that that's enough. And I guess we'll see. Wow, you, it, this is incredible stuff, Tor, really is. You know, like, it's hard to see the picture when we're in the frame, right? You know what I mean <laughs> yes. by that? Yeah, yeah. I thought you were tearing up a bit. <laughs> Just don't mad. tell anyone. I'm meant to be well told. Well, I, I I'm am. from Yorkshire, I'm hard. <laughs> oh, okay. Um, so, you know, I'm, I'm from Yorkshire as well. Yeah? Oh, are you? Okay, <laughs> I kind of heard it in, uh, and I respect your privacy and all this stuff, right? So I'm I'm from a little village called. Uh, so I'm from I'm from Weatherby originally, which is. Oh, okay. People... I'm not in Yorkshire now, but I am from uh, Yorkshire. Yeah. Uh, so 
So yeah, um, uh, it's halfway between London and, and Edinburgh for, for 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 ease, roughly. <laughs> um, to to the audiences from Ireland, we have a lot of uh, listeners from the US, fifty uh, odd percent of them from the US. Um, yeah, I was tearing up as well. Okay. Yeah, do you know? It's I don't know. Um, it's my hope. It's my hope for him that he knows that he's very much loved and very much wanted and very much accepted. And that's really my biggest hope for him. And, you know, I, I don't mind what path he wants to take. I really don't. I, I just hope that it's as easy as it can be. And I, I do as well know that I can't necessarily love away all the challenges that he will have. And um, as much as I want to sort of put my arms around him and make it fine, I sometimes can't. And there are some things that all we can really do is face it together. And when my eldest experienced that racism in the park when he was tiny, um, you know, I did a whole lot of thinking about that. And I, and I thought afterwards, I can't, I can't make, I can't make that not be an issue in his life. I can't, but I can walk it with him to the extent that I can. And that's what I think with my youngest, that as we face any challenges that are ahead and as he comes to terms with, you know, more and more of his own story, um, all I can say is that I'm next to him on that path and, you know, that he doesn't have to face those things on his own, really. And that's the best that I can say. I can't say I know the answers and I can't say that I can make it different to what it was because it is what it is. His life is what it is. And um, he's just not going to be on his own with any of it. You know, he's got a team. And uh, so, you know, again, sometimes that's something that I verbalise with him is that, you know, I'm on your team no matter what. And so I guess I hope that's enough. So, yeah. yeah. And now I've lost my tough image. <laughs> So, yeah, but mum, vulnerable is cool. <laughs> <laughs> so, I, I see. Um, I've I've seen I've, I've seen this in the. This is a cultural difference here, right? Um, between the UK and the US. I went to a, a conference last year, and it was a marketing conference. It was nothing to do with adoption, right? Okay. Um, just before COVID, and I saw people on the stage using vulnerability as a strategy, and it made me want to retch. <laughs> <laughs> but you know vulnerability as in just being honest you know like not as a strategy because that's the way the conversation is going i love it um and uh i i wanted to you you, you dropped a real nugget here um in your uh, modesty uh earlier on uh that well in your modesty i'm sure you'll you might because we're British, we're gonna we're gonna push this back. Right? But <laughs> I want to I want to I want to say something that I wrote down. Right, you said something like, "Fear is harder to." I think you said, "Fear is harder to deal with than reality." Did you say that? Yeah, something like that. Yeah, that's yeah. right. Um, and you know, you've talked about your you talked about your um, challenges, and you talked about the challenges that your your, your kids will face and your son will face. Um, all of them and challenges that we all face and I just thought that that fear is harder to deal with than reality I thought was um, great and I heard something about this 
last week, no, earlier this week on a podcast, and it summed it up for me. And I'm trying to think for the life, life of me, what it's, what it, what the, the um, now I'm feeling silly because I can't remember what. <laughs> Theory, fear is about the future, usually about the future. Yes. Pretty much always about the future. It's not about the present. And I I guess for kids that have come from tough places, so I was doing the sums, and I think, did you, you said your son's 15 and you, he's been with you for eight years. So. No, I'm sorry. My eldest is 15, which oh, sorry. is my donor conceived child. My youngest is nine. Right. Okay. So kids that have come from hard places, their fear may be related, you know, like a, 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 it's a memory of the past. Um, so sometimes fear is a memory of the past. Sometimes fear is, uh, it, it, it is, is concern about the future. But most of the time, for most of us, it's nothing to do with the present. Yes. Yes, absolutely. And I think when we're talking about things from the past as well, I think shame is often entwined with that. The things that make us feel sick from the past can be about shame. And again, I'm aware that um, children who've been adopted can take on shame very easily and that they will own shame that should never be theirs. And so, um, again, I try to verbalise that with my son to some extent, Um, not quite as starkly as I've just said it, but um, not now speaking about my own son's background, but speaking more generally, some of the reasons that children are adopted are around things like neglect or abuse or sexual abuse, or exploitation, or all of these things. And the victims of these things can feel immense shame about what happened and about the strategies that they used to cope. And um, I I don't want to appropriate that experience because I don't have that experience, but I think that sometimes for LGBT people, we have also been taught that the things that we feel and hope for are shameful things and that shame is an appropriate response to feeling like we do or being you know uh, so as a woman being attracted to women that that is a shameful thing and that you should carry that shame and you should hide that disgusting aspect of yourself and so for lgbt people who have a lived experience of processing um shame and the requirement to perform shame in the face of um things that shouldn't be about shame I think that gives some level of insight. And like I say, I don't want to appropriate horrendous experiences like having lived through abuse or sexual exploitation or whatever. But I do think that something about having lived an experience that you are told is is your fault and that you're told is a shameful thing um, can allow you an approach that's perhaps gentle around shame and that knows how much shame can sting and hurt and so on. And with you saying about fear is about the future, I think you're right that, um, you know, what we lay awake at night, my dad calls it the hour of the wolf. I don't know if that's widely used expression or not, but the hour of the wolf is when it's very, very dark and you're listening out for the wolf. And that hour of the night when you're most worried about stuff. 
And it is, it's about what could happen. You know, this could happen, that could happen. What if this happens? Um, and again, I think living in the now and saying, we're fine, it's all okay, we're all right. You know, it's that's quite a nice thing. Yeah. I heard something on this yesterday. Um, we did a, uh, I was chatting to a, a adoption professional, a therapist in the States, and she was talking about monkey chatter. And, um, you know, I have, I have the hour of the wolf, right? You know, I, I wake up early thinking about stuff, you know, how am I going to get more listeners to my podcast and all that sort of stuff, <laughs> you know, uh, when I'm going to make any money out of it and my wife stopped telling me off for doing stuff that I'm not making money on, <laughs> all, all that sort of stuff, right? And I'm laughing about it. But I'll tell you what, hour of the wolf, Two o'clock. Oh yeah, it's big then. Yeah, is that? Um, but there's the um, you know the there's the hour of the wolf, or there's the monkey chatter, and um, I, and I I kind of like I prefer the monkey chatter. Do you know what I mean? That's not quite as uh, as ominous. I, re I remember. Do you remember playing Murder in the Dark as a yes. kid? Yes. Remember Murder in the Dark? <laughs> so it's a party yeah. game, and you know there's a there's you know one of the kids is designated as murderer. Uh, I don't know, you know, whether this still goes on. You know, I'm 54. Do, do people play this game? One is one kid is designated the murderer. That's great, isn't it? Um, there's no shame uh, associated with being a murderer in this game. Um, <laughs> and and like and so you switch the lights off, and then the 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 the, the murderer's gonna touch somebody, not actually murder them, um, <laughs> just touch them. Uh, and it used to scare the bejesus out of me. Uh, mm. <laughs> um you know um so that's what came to mind you know i'd uh, I, you know I'd, I'd rather be i'd i'd, I'd rather refer to the uh, the monkey chatter the, the wolf's kind of the wolf stuff sounds pretty scary to me um and um i think we were talking about limiting beliefs i was talking to this lady about limiting beliefs and, and she was talking about monkey chatter and i said to her well that's great um this is hillary merrifield she's been on the show um uh, you know, she was saying, I was talking about limiting beliefs. And I said, is, is the idea that limiting is, is the belief that there is such a thing as limiting belief itself, a limiting belief, you know, when we're looking to let it go as the woman sings, uh, in frozen, <laughs> um, we're looking for the it, you know, we're looking, we're looking to substantiate the fear. Um, so I've, I've, I, I used to, and I still sometimes do worry about worrying. But I would never describe myself as having anxiety. Do you see what I mean? There's, it, yes. It's, uh, I, I, and the, but there's there's some um, there's some stuff for me. I loved what you're talking about. Um, you're talking about your 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 son's um, vocabulary and the way that he refers to his relatives, and that you don't change that because when I'm I had a I had a, a coach, business coach, who used to kind of like just kind of. I, I, she used to pick me apart on on little things like that and it's just like no, sorry this is trivia what, oh well you, you, you your language what's your language Simon and I'm thinking no I mean that's going nowhere can we deal with the matter in hand you know it doesn't matter it uh, well we're from I'm from Yorkshire so we call a spade a spade but <laughs> let, you know let, let, let's let's not have the debate about whether you could show them call them shovels and let's let's deal with the matter at hand rather than this this uh, frivolous stuff in this conversation that I was having about the the thing. You know, go go deeper, go, go deeper, or, or or 
into the subject, not in, and not deal with the vocabulary. And it is, it's, it's negating. It's negating when we say to other people, "Mind your language," um, uh, or, or, or pull them apart on the vocabulary. And it, it, it's going to break. It, it's going to break the empathy in, in in the middle of that conversation. So, yeah, uh, and I agree with that. When um, so, my eldest son at secondary school again experienced um, some racism from another child. I'm making it sound that like this has been a very common theme and it hasn't, but it did come up again for him in secondary school. And as part of us dealing with that, there were several meetings with the school and so on. And at one bit, I was chatting to my eldest son about it and he was upset and he was angry and he was humiliated and hurt by what had gone on. And he turned to me and really angry said, you will never know what this feels like. And he was right, but it was really, really hard to hear. And I guess that I'm conscious of that as well with my youngest, that I will never know what it feels like to have been adopted. And I'm really wary of defining that experience for him. So I want to, I, you know, like I said, I want to be there for him. But in terms of what significance that has and how he refers to him and what, and what language he uses and what part of his identity that forms or doesn't, I really do think that's a journey that's his that I can support him with, but I can't feel it for him or anticipate how it'll feel or really even define it for him. Because I think in doing that, I'm taking it as if it's mine and it isn't. And so I might have experiences that have some parallels with that. And I might be able to draw on those with him if he wants me to, but I'm really loath to speak for him and say, it will be this, use this language, say it like that identifying this way or don't or whatever it is so I guess it's just giving him some breadth for for that journey and I don't mind if he later feels that being adopted is a core part of his identity good fine I will help him mark that or celebrate it or commiserate it or whatever it forms for him that's fine if he feels that actually adoption is a thing that happened when he was very tiny and it doesn't really form part of who he is again fine that's how we will process it and so on if he wants to meet birth family, I will support him to do it. If he doesn't, I will support him not to do it. And all of those decisions, I think, are his with my support, but not mine. And so I guess that's that's the approach that I'm taking. And again, who knows? Let's hope it's right. I guess we'll find out. Yeah. Uh, on that last point, I, I put a... a I often talk about this on the podcast that uh, that uh, the Facebook groups for adoptees are very dark, dark places, uh, uh, full of somebody referred to this as trauma dumping, which I thought was an excellent uh, summation of, um, of, of of what happens in some of these groups. I, I put a group, I put a post um, in a Facebook group saying, um, you know, adoption is something that happens to us. It doesn't define us. And I got um, 120 likes, 20 loves, uh, and I don't know, 10 hates or whatever, and 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 15 really, really angry comments. How how dare you? You know, which I thought was an interesting way to um, to kind of sum it up. Uh, and I also, you know, I saw a an adoptive parent, a potential adoptive parent came into one of these groups and said, um, I came into this group to see what, you know, what, what you guys, how you guys are. Um, and uh, frankly, I'm put off being an adoptive parent because of the stuff that I see going on in this group. And I put on there would just be careful about 
you know who you listen to because this group these groups tend to be uh dark places so don't let that you know be careful be, be careful of the you know be careful where you get your data from really yeah um, of course i guess any support group will attract people who need support and so by definition they are not a cross section of all of those people they are the people within that subset who need support and so indeed but but you know i can understand that when jackie and i were talking about should we adopt we obviously went online and you know did a load of research and did a load of reading and again we tended to be bumping into the stories of where people were really really struggling and where it was really really hard and children with massive levels of unmet need and it it was scary and it was off-putting and it's really hard now to balance that because those stories are real and those families are really struggling and any one of us could be that family and so in one sense it's really important that those stories are out there but it becomes um, it becomes defining and it's very hard to see that actually not all the stories are like that. And the people for whom things are largely fine and largely straightforward or where it forms some part of their life, but not all. Why would you go on a forum and post that? You know, if, if we're having a great time, I don't go on a forum and post anything. Um, when I do go on a forum, it would be because something was a sticking point and I was looking for support, advice, help, whatever it was. A lot of uh, I see a lot of um, when the trauma dumping happens. I see a lot of people joining in and 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 pulling people further, pulling people validating validating that trauma, uh, and actually pulling them further down the rabbit hole, the tra trauma rabbit hole. And I've been down that trauma rabbit hole, not very far down. You know, I could still see some light. I could still see turn around occasionally, and well, occasionally I could turn around and I can see light at the end of the tunnel. Um, these people, a lot of the people, just get dragged further and further, uh, and um, it's uh, it's a dark it's a dark place, you know. It's a it, it's a it's a dark place, and yeah, very tricky, very tricky. Um, changing the subject completely. What would you like to call this episode? Oh no, the pressure's on now. Wow. Um... That's a funny name for an episode. <laughs> oh, gosh, I don't know. Um, I'm often defined externally as an LGBT adopter. Um, it's not always it's not always how I think of myself, but, um, you know, something about that would be fine. Um, I don't know. Uh, <laughs> tough on the outside, squishy on the inside, something like that. That would sum it up. I don't know. <laughs> okay. Um, I'm going to... I'm uh, sorry, that wasn't dead air, guys. That was just me thinking about what, was, what I'd call it. Uh, yeah, I feel I, I feel on the spot too, and I asked the question, so that's a silly one, isn't it? <laughs> um, so uh, I, I, I like I, I, the. I, I, I'm gonna, I think I'm going to go with your quote. Um, fear is to fear is harder to deal with than reality. 
yeah okay well that's that's true too because <laughs> um, otherwise i'm I, 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 so I, I was checking somebody else's podcast a, a, a great uh, somebody that has far more listeners than than me and they had really short titles because when you look at itunes most of the people look at my podcast i listen to my podcast on iTunes. itunes only displays like a, a few words so theory is harder to deal with uh, than reality might not fit in the in the things but it, 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 we want to we want the tr- we want the truth about what the 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 the, uh, the, the show is and um otherwise i'm you know we could talk but I, I haven't i've had plenty of episodes called resilience and identity or coming through stuff um but i i do think that your your life has been a, and continues to be a, a, a master stroke of um a, a master class in resilience at all well thank you I mean it's very kind of you to say but you know I we really are just pretty normal and you know stuff pulls us up gets us down whatever um but you know yeah you get on through I find chocolate helps quite a lot okay uh milk or or dark oh anything but not with nuts in I mean you know really nuts and fruit Uh do not belong in chocolate so so if anybody's ever near Weatherby, they need to check into the uh, the candy shop. It was a, a fine chocolate emporium. Uh, I used to work there 40 odd years ago. It's not quite as good as it used to be. But yeah, Cadbury's mini eggs um, were my uh, uh, sweet uh, candy, as Americans would say, to to take to eat whilst I was on £1.50 an hour. And I must admit, <laughs> I didn't pay for most of them well I didn't pay for any of them but I was only on one pound fifty an hour so I kind of saw that as supplementing my meager income um so uh I, maybe I maybe I should call it maybe we should call the episode a master class in modesty <laughs> that would be no, a master class in how um chocolate gets you through adoption yeah, yeah. Cho- uh, chocolate and adoption yeah, yeah that would do chocolate and adoption um so yeah chocolate and and wine or chocolate and coffee but never tea Never tea and chocolate. Oh, always right? tea. No tea and coffee. Tea and chocolate. Tea and chocolate. Yeah. 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 Because you know, if you dunk it in, it melts. Oh, you see. In fact, I don't know why we're doing this podcast. We should be eating chocolate and drinking tea. Frankly, I'm, I'm going to send you uh, a virtual, some virtual chocolate. Uh, <laughs> Thank you very much for uh, for coming on, and I'm going to put obviously links to you guys' uh, social. Um, uh, check out what they. Uh, taught and her inspirational team are doing very modestly <laughs> sort of the british way we're not going to blow our own trumpet oh no you uh, can't no no you get kicked out of being british wouldn't you yeah oh, I, i'm going to share one last final story um so we were i was in uh i was in rome a few years ago uh with uh, my, my wife and a, another couple and we got talking to an american guy and the american guy was was in in you know with what you're doing in Rome, you know. He said, "Oh, we're doing a tour of Europe, and I've just come from um, I've, I've come from Ireland. Oh, what have you been doing in Ireland? Uh, I, I've been playing golf." And uh, I said, and, "And my friend's a golfer, so he's talking about this sort of stuff." Uh, and um, uh, and uh, my friend said, uh, "Oh, yeah." So the guy said, "Oh, yeah, I've been helicoptering in from different uh, golf courses, which." Kind of, oh God, right, okay. Uh, we should have known from that. Uh, and my friend said, oh, uh, so you're pretty good at golf. Uh, they, and, and the American guy said, yeah, I am actually. <laughs> and, uh, me, me and my mate Mike were, sorry, my mum would, would tell me off of that. Mike 
uh, my friend and I, Mike, um, <laughs> uh, were, were totally gobsmacked by this guy. Yeah. Uh, and, and that was kind of pretty much the end of the conversation because we couldn't do with his lack of uh, lack of modesty, blowing his own trumpet. It's not the it's not the British way. And it's definitely <laughs> not the Yorkshire way. Thanks a lot for coming on the show. And listeners, do check out what Tor's about and the show notes link to uh, link, link to her organisation and the socials. And thank you very much for coming on the show, Tor. It's been uh, it, it's been wonderful. Thank you. Thank you so much for having me.